This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Have you seen the video of President Obama calling Donald Trump a total and complete dipshit? It's right there on YouTube. But it doesn't sound like something Obama would say in a public address. And that's because it isn't. The video is a deep fake, an AI-generated video. It's one of a growing number of deep fakes that have emerged over the last several years. And I wanted to dig into these and talk about what they are, how they're created, how they're being used in politics, what they mean for the information landscape as it's changing, what they mean for information warfare. So I'm excited to speak today with Nina Schick. Nina is an independent political consultant who has worked on some of the biggest political events of the last decade, including Brexit, the EU's migrant crisis, Emmanuel Macron's 2017 presidential campaign, election interference, including the 2016 and 2020 elections in the U.S., She's advised a group of global leaders, including Joe Biden, on AI-generated synthetic media, also known as deepfakes. She's a contributor to broadcasters, including Bloomberg, Sky, CNN, and the BBC. And she is the author of Deepfakes, The Coming Infocalypse. Nina, for a lot of reasons, which we'll probably get into, I've been looking forward to this conversation since I listened to the talk you had with Sam Harris. So thank you for making the time. And welcome to Politicology. Thank you for having me, Ron. It's a pleasure to be here. It seems obvious to me, as someone who has worked in politics their entire life, that the government is always only ever going to be playing catch up with technology, ever. Like that's, that's just accept it and move on. If we can't even figure out a solution to privacy when it comes to revenge porn, we're never going to catch up to the advances in AI that are, that are facilitating malice that we can't even imagine yet, right? That we, that we really can't. So I have to assume that the solution to this privacy challenge is going to be technology-based and it's not going to come from government. Government is not actually equipped to safeguard us from the negative byproducts of advancements in technology, which aren't going to stop. I lay that at your feet and I, I, any thoughts you have about right now, as, as people are probably having their minds blown right, by hearing this conversation, are there, are there specific things that they can be thinking about that they can be doing um, to protect themselves from the information apocalypse? Well, for certain, if you have <laughs> your voice ID as your banking password, please change it. <laughs> First of all. Um, and the second thing I suppose is, a broader point here about, okay, again, we've talked about the exponential changes of this era. And to a certain extent, the response, the solution has to be society-wide, right? We have to build resilience for the ways in which the information ecosystem is changing so dramatically. And we have to have the conceptual understanding that this is a huge paradigm change. So I think that in our lifetime, we'll experience more change than has been experienced by the entirety of humanity that, that's come before us. So in terms of protecting ourselves, 
Society-wide resilience building is key. You can't say, okay, we throw this at the foot of the government and they need to deal with it. Ron, you and I have worked closely with government. We know that it's slow, bureaucratic, often reactive, not proactive. But to a certain extent, we also get the leaders we deserve. So there needs to be a civil society kind of understanding of the existential risk that this potentially is. And only then, I mean, you can't just say, okay, the politicians need to sort it out. It also needs to come from us. Okay, this is something we care about, the information ecosystem, just like we care about climate change, for instance. And this needs to be on the agenda. So um, it needs to be from grassroots. It needs to be reflected in policymaking, but it also needs to come with collaboration with um, industry. And it is interesting to see that there are corporations and innovative companies helping to build at least the tech-led solutions. So if you want to look at the solutions broadly, you can put them into the kind of tech category. So you can build kind of the best detection algorithms or the best kind of media provenance tools or media authentication tools. But that's all useless if we don't kind of apply them in the society solutions, which is to do with conceptual understanding, education, good policy, good regulation. So no silver bullet, unfortunately, it just is going to be this shift of understanding in terms of like everything is changing. How do we move and inhabit this new world where like the old rules don't apply anymore? Seems to me we are due, long overdue, for a government-industry collaboration to educate people, the general population, uh, about exactly what kind of world we're we're now entering in the information age. Just, I feel like it's negligent that there hasn't been some sort of large-scale education effort, Um, but. Maybe that's something. Maybe that's something we'll see. No, uh, absolutely. Next, and I mean, it's not yeah. only about the changes in the information ecosystem. Yeah. We're just entering an era of a lot of uncertainty, disruption, and change. I mean, you you you've just been in Ukraine. You've seen that. You know, in in the twenty first century, there is now a major land war happening on the European landmass. Something that many of us assumed would never happen again, um, and that's happening at a time when we have all these kind of rapid changes in our information ecosystem that are led by technology, just as we are coming up against the limits of what our world can sustain when you think about um, kind of the environmental uh, problems, disasters that we're potentially facing. So there is almost a need for us to be able, we've had a really good time for the past decade and a half. It's been a good run. Yeah, it's been a good run. (laughs) But like the idea of existential risk needs to again be foremost in our minds. Um, And if you think about, you know, 100 years ago, our ancestors before the First World War, Second World War, they had an understanding of that, what that was, whether it was during the Cold War or even before nuclear weapons were invented. And they had an understanding of what each person's kind of civic duty was with regards to kind of the existential risk and geopolitical uncertainties that we're facing. And I think that needs to be reintroduced into the psyche of every um, citizen of the Western world. Because another thing that's happening here, another trend, of course, is that we, I'm here in London, you're, you're in D.C., we citizens of the Western world can no longer take for granted um, the values and ideals which you know our countries espouse if you look at what's happening in the rest of the world. So I think that's a very important message for each of us to take away from this conversation. 
Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, I will admit to you now, I don't think I've uh, talked to anyone about this yet, but during the 2020 campaign, the Lincoln Project, um, I think it was sometime in the spring or summer, I uh, I proposed the idea of creating a deep fake ad, which I think would have been the first uh, the first political ad anyway. Um, that was, you know, created using deep fake technology because I wanted to sort of resurrect Ronald Reagan sitting at the Oval Office and talking about Donald Trump, right? And um, and uh, it, it, things were moving too quickly, and uh, and I did a little bit of research and and discovered that actually the technology was available to us, and we certainly could have done it um, relatively easily. I mean, the ad never got made, but um, I want to talk a little bit about deepfakes in a political context and how you see those uh, evolving. I mean, is I don't think we've seen any being deployed in an election just yet, uh, it, although it's the midterms and it's early, right? Uh, it could happen this year. Um, how do you see deepfake technology playing out in, 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 in politics and especially in political campaigns as, uh, you know, as it becomes more more and more difficult to, you know, differentiate between what's what's real and what's not. Um, and given the toothless regulatory environment that is U.S. politics, um, how how big of a threat do you see that as? Yeah, no, absolutely. So actually, even ahead of the 2020 election, there was a lot of um, a lot of pieces, a lot of concern that you know the election would be disrupted by a political deep fake, right? And this is kind of like since. The very kind of um, bursting onto the scene, if you will, in, in the public imagination of deepfakes at the start of at the end of 2017, when they first emerged in the form of non-consensual pornography, there's been this kind of panic that they're somehow going to be used in this nuclear scenario scenario to sway a massive political event. There's lots of articles kind of written about that. You know, it's, it was yeah. the eve of an election, a deepfake video emerges, voters change their vote, etc. We have the pinnacle of disinformation. Political disinformation, <laughs> potent visual political disinformation. Now we haven't really seen that happen yet. And the reason why is because you cannot take deepfakes in isolation. This is what I talk about in my book with regards to the corrosion of the information ecosystem, because what you've been seeing essentially for the past decade, at least, as we've had smartphones, uh, more sophisticated tools to manipulate and edit media, uh, social media, and the rise of social media, is that you're already facing an information ecosystem which is inundated by so-called cheap fakes. So this is either miscontextualized, manipulated, or crudely edited media, including visual media. Um, which is already very, very compelling. It already sways elections. It already leads to things like ethnic genocides in places like um, Myanmar. Even, I mean, talking about 2020, what happened after Trump lost the election? He was literally taking authentic video of voters counting the vote and miscontextualizing it as, oh, this is evidence of voters dump, um, vote ballots being dumped, right? He didn't need AI. He didn't need sophisticated tools. You just take what's out there. So the reason why we haven't seen this kind of nuclear scenario vis-a-vis -vis deepfakes in politics is because 
cheap fakes are already so, so, so effective. That's not to say we're not going to start seeing politically motivated deep fakes. And I think the reason why you haven't seen an inundation of that yet is because the barrier to entry in terms of creating a very sophisticated deep fake is still higher than what most people, you know, you have to, you have to want to be able to do it. So like, for instance, when you looked into it with regards to, to the Reagan idea, um, you know, it, it, it's still not at the point where you can just have an app on your phone and you can create a really sophisticated deepfake without working with somebody. So what the last 10 years tells us with the inundation of cheapfakes and how it's completely upended global politics, not only in non-democratic countries, but in our own Western societies, when you look at the amount of mis and disinformation that faces us, is that that is a story where we need to learn, okay, what lessons do we need to learn for like the age when deep fakes emerge, when synthetic media becomes increasingly available to everyone. So not a lot of political deep fakes yet, lots of cheap fakes. And if we look at, if we know anything about the impact of cheap fakes, we can just imagine how potent deep fakes might be. The, the, having said that, I will caveat that with one other point about the political context and deepfakes. Where I've seen deepfakes have the most impact within the political context is not so much that you've seen lots of AI-created content. You've seen a further corrosion of trust in authentic media. This is the, the, what I already referred to, this phenomenon known as the liar's dividend, and I can give you a couple of examples. So one, at the end of 2019, we're looking at Gabon, the, the country in Africa, where the president, Ali Bongo, had not been seen for a few months, right? And there was a lot of speculation that he might be dead, incapacitated, you know, nobody had seen him in pub public. So in order to kind of quell um, these rumors, President Ali Bongo appeared in his traditional New Year's Eve address on television. But when he appeared on TV, he looked really strange. His face was completely distorted. His eyes looked odd. So there was rumors that Ali Bongo was dead and that video was a deep fake. Now, within days, that led to an attempted coup d'etat. The video, <laughs> the video was not fake. It was an authentic video, but he looked strange because what had actually happened is that he had suffered a stroke. And he had been hidden from public view because he had had a stroke. And then, you know, to kind of quell his uh, the kind of rumors, he he made this address. But because the rumor actually went into overdrive that that was evidence that it was, you know, he was dead and it was a deep fake, his government was almost overthrown. A second really in interesting incident with regards to the liar's dividend and deep fakes. So that was in Africa. Um, I mean, took place in the United States. It, it was um, at the beginning of lockdown 2020. My book had just come out. And I, in my book, there was a chapter on President Trump and US election. Um, and I had made the observation that, you know, it's pretty soon. It was actually just after George Floyd's death video had come out. And that was in my book. And I made the observation that it won't be long before even video like this, which is so visceral, so compelling, so powerful that it unites millions of people in protest, not only in the United States, but across the world. It won't be long before this is even dismissed as a fake. Then my book went to the publishers and even I was really surprised at how quickly that happened. Two weeks later, 
um, very unlikely candidate, uh, a, a lady known as Dr. Winnie Hartstrong, um, a PhD holding African-American woman who was standing in 2020 to be elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. She released a 23-page report detailing why the George Floyd death video was a deepfake hoax. And in it, she argued that George Floyd had actually died in 2016. And the man that you see in the video is uh, a former retired NBA player. Now, what? Yeah. I don't know. Sorry. I thought I, I that's completely escaped my radar. Yeah. So, <laughs> so Winnie Hardstrom. Wow. Theory and she she properly there was a website she went on podcasts she was campaigning on Twitter and dare I say that you know probably her theory uh, her interpretation of events didn't go mainstream but as we enter the age of AI and synthetic media um, we can no longer take for granted that even something that is as compelling as that video that most of us still accept is true and really happened that that is something that we can just assume to be the case. So the ramifications extend beyond just being duped by an actual deep fake piece of material, but also the additional distrust in real information exactly. as being deep. And that, by the way, is essentially if you, if you look into, you know, rush the history of Russian disinformation is where an autocrat like Putin wants you to be, where you become so cynical that you don't believe in anything anymore. And of course, that is an existential threat to liberal democracy, right? Where the electorate is so cynical that we don't trust or believe anything anymore. So given that that is the potential danger of the information ecosystem we're about to inhabit, how do we make sure <laughs> that we take some, put some safeguards in place? Well, let's talk about Russia a little bit more um, uh, since you brought it up, because uh, as you mentioned, I, I uh, just got back from Ukraine and uh, our listeners haven't yet heard any of the material that we that we recorded there. I'm not sure when that's going to happen, but we did meet with uh, a couple of Zelensky's team. Um, one of them was sort of running the information operations for him. And one of the things uh, he talked about was exactly... I mean, we talked several people on this front, but the the theme that emerged was it is so difficult to penetrate the information bubble within Russia, not because of any technological reason, but because of the mindset of the Russians uh, refusing to believe even what's in front of their eyes when they see it. Just absolute disbelief, even when they see images, for example, from Bucha or from uh, you know from from a, 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 any any atrocities that the Russians might be committing in Ukraine. Even if you put the images in front of them, they don't believe it. And uh, I, I um, so in mid March, there was a, a deep fake video of Zelensky, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, telling Ukrainian soldiers right to lay down their arms and surrender to the Russians. Uh, there's another deep fake showing Putin declaring peace. Uh, so as it relates to this war, um, how are you thinking about what deep fakes can mean for the future? of information warfare, the, as it's sort of unfolding right now in Ukraine, which is like ground zero, it's the first war of the information age really is being fought right now in, 
in Ukraine. And so there's, there's both this problem of the cynical mindset where you believe nothing. And if you think about the Russian mindset as sort of the danger of what could happen to liberal democracy, and also the, the weapon of deepfakes that have been deployed uh, by Putin in order to you know, trick the Ukrainians. Um, just help me untangle this and, and, and how, you, how you see this unfolding and the significance of what's happening right now in Ukraine. So in the context of Ukraine, just to get specific on the deep fakes themselves, I think the biggest risk or the biggest kind of pernicious effect is again the liar's dividend, right? That the people of Russia have become so cynical based on, you know, obvious historical reasons, um, maybe not wanting to believe, uh, also being part of this information ecosystem where they're fed propaganda every day, that they will not believe you can show them evidence of what's happening. They will not believe that true. That again is a liar's dividend in play. We talked about it in the context of Gabon. We talked about it with Dr. Winnie Hardstrong and George Floyd. If you look at what's happening in Russia, that is the extreme conclusion of where a society can go when you become so cynical that you don't trust any, anything anymore. That is the autocrat's dream, right? To be able to create a state where nothing has to be real, everything can be possible, then the only thing that matters is narrative, right? There's no truth, there's no reality, it's just what you say it is. And it's very sad to kind of see how, I mean, you talk in the Western media, we've talked a little bit about, you know, the brave kind of Russian people who are opposing the war and, you know, uh, going out there to protest, potentially being thrown in prison. But that is a tiny, tiny, tiny minority of the Russian population. The mass majority of the Russian population is actually behind the war, and they seem to support Putin's narrative on the war. You know, why is that, even if they see evidence to the contrary? And I don't think that the Russian information ecosystem is so closed that they can't get any other reports coming from outside. We know that's not true. That's so right. The conclusion I would make is that that is where we don't want to be, where nothing is real anymore, where nothing matters anymore, everything can be faked. That is the, the effect of extreme propaganda and disinformation. With regards to the actual deep fakes that we've seen proliferating, including fake Zelensky or fake Putin, they weren't super pernicious in, in the regard that, okay, you know, when everyone saw the Zelensky deepfake, for instance, they knew it was a manipulated piece. People didn't actually go down and surrender to Russian troops because they saw the video of Zelensky and they thought, aha, okay, our president has now told us to lay down our arms. Again, what you've seen to be more pernicious in the context of this war, you've seen a few high profile deepfakes that have provoked debate, but they haven't like led to um, anything that's changed the paradigm. The, the the more pernicious effects of deepfakes is, again, this um, augmentation of the liar's dividend, this idea that everything can be faked. The more pernicious thing, again, in this war is cheapfakes. So you've seen it all over social media, for instance, where you take old footage of an explosion and you're like, okay, this is, uh, you know, the Russian troops doing this or that, or, or, you know, show saying to show something on the ground that we know is not true. And of course, in real time on social media, that spreading can cause like a lot of confusion and disarray. And the final thing I would make, um, observation I'd make is 
about the changing nature of war. We used to think that, you know, war, especially in the 20th century, was well understood. You're either at war or you're not, you're in a cold war. But now, even though Russia has launched this ground invasion of Ukraine, so kinetic war in the sense that we might understand it in the uh, like we did in the 20th century, the fact is that Russia has been at war with Ukraine for over a decade or even longer than that. In fact, did the war against the West ever stop in Russia? You know, I mean, Putin has famously said that he thought the um, the breakup of the Soviet Union was the biggest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, you know. So that idea that you're at war or you're not is very outdated. In fact, we have been at war, information war, for decades. And this is something that I think the citizens of the West, you know, we've been complacent on this. We've had, like I said, we have a great time uh, enjoying the end of history and all that. Uh, but we have been at war. And the, the fact is that we cannot take our values, our ideas, the way we live our life for granted. Yeah. I would love for you to say a little bit more about that because we, I think most Americans still have this, uh, I, I think it's now antiquated idea of war as a formal declaration that Congress has never made actually for recent years for the military conflicts that the U S has been engaged in. Uh, so we end up, you know, we get frustrated because, oh, we have the war in Iraq and then we have the war in Afghanistan. There was never a formal declaration of war made, but this idea of even being at war as a binary is not really useful anymore because of the way conflict has evolved. And I, I, I wonder what you think about that. What does that mean for us as individuals having to decide, um, how to engage with our political leaders? How do we think about a country at war or at, or, or not at war? And, um, and where does that put us as individuals? And fundamentally, this goes back again to the, to the points we were making earlier about like what a unique time in history this is in terms of what a paradigm changing epoch and era we live in. And that is, of course, led by technology, specifically when it comes to war. You know, we still rely on very outdated definitions of what war is. But in reality, you know, we are already in a world, and this goes, I mean, so controversial in U.S. Uh, political history, you know, the whole idea of Russia Gate and Russian interference. But ultimately, you, what, that ha- what happened is that a aggressive nation state, and we can debate how effective or ineffective it was, was able to penetrate the civil society debate of U.S. democracy without even having a person on the ground, right, uh, from St. Petersburg, or e- if indeed there were even operations in Africa where you had kind of social media troll forms, wherever, you don't have to even have an agent on the ground in the United States to be able to infiltrate and poison and taint the political debate of your country. You know, this is one way that constant war is waging right now. So it's no longer a case of it's on or it's off, it's constant. And ultimately, what it's all about is a battle for ideals and values. And (laughs) unfortunately, um, kind of global geopolitics doesn't seem to be on the radar of a lot of kind of Western citizens, which are understandably because we're concerned about you know, inflation or the price of gas or the price of food. But the backdrop to this is what's happening in the world. And you can see how the d- democratic countries and the authoritarian counterbalance to that 
are in an existential struggle. Whose ideals and values are going to win out in the end? And I mean, we cannot take yeah. ours for granted. It's so um, um, fitting that you said values, because as I was talking to some Ukrainians, asking them to describe what this war was really about and why America was resonating with it, why why the West had such sympathy and empathy for for their fight. Um, it was very, the, the, the language barrier was tough, but they were describing, uh, they said, our values are your values. That's what this war is about. It's far bigger than territory. It's far bigger than the Donbass or Crimea. It's far bigger than that. It's a, it's a war of values. And uh, I, I think it's sort of helpful to, th- it, since that's ultimately at the core of this, of this conflict, I think it's helpful to, uh, think about the concept of war really as just atomizing down to an individual level. Now that everybody is, if it's an information war and information really has no boundaries, then we're all at some level really engaged in this conflict, which I think is going to consume the rest of our lives. Yeah. Absolutely. And almost our war in the West is that we want to be able to inhabit an information ecosystem where we can have confidence that the information we interact with on a daily basis can be trusted information, right? Because without those kind of safeguards, then you are having an information ecosystem like China's or uh, that in Russia, where you're so cynical, nothing matters anymore. Nothing has to be real. Nothing has to be true. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, one of the really interesting counterintuitive points about this age of information is that when we think about censorship, and I know this is a another heated debate um, in the United States, you know, about censorship and what you can and can't post online, we tend to think about it as taking away somebody's right to speak on social media or taking away information, the kind of drip, drip, drip model that you see in North Korea, right? But the opposite, when you have too much information and you cannot distinguish between what you can trust or what you cannot trust, is just has the exact same effect in terms of censorship. And it's called censorship through noise. And that's what we're facing kind of in this new information ecosystem where we just, there is so much stuff thrown at the wall. You don't know what to trust, what's real, what's not. It's actually having the same kind of censorship effect as, so for in North Korea, uh, you, through censorship, people believe that the, the the dear leader was, I don't know, ascended from heaven on a white unicorn or whatever it is that we might laugh at. And he, you know, say, and, oh, and he doesn't have a butthole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't, <laughs> can't believe that they might think that. And that, that's, a, <laughs> that's a consequence of censorship. But I mean, in the United States, half the electorate believes that the election was stolen, right? Just to underscore this point, back before the 2020 election, I spoke with um, Alex Gibney and uh, the documentarian Alex Gibney and Camille Francois, who was in his uh, documentary Agents of Chaos, um, which was about Russian interference, of course. And um, one of the things we talked about is how easy it is to, to, to look at the disinformation campaigns and throw up your hands and say, I can't tell what's real, what's fake, what's astroturfed. And, you know, now when there's any controversial video that comes out or leaked audio that comes out, one of the first things you ask yourself is, is this real? Did this really happen? Or you should be asking yourself, is this real? Did this really happen? And I, um, 
I, I think we've made the point, uh, I think people are starting to get it, that this has enormous societal, not just at the individual level, but enormous societal implications when we can't trust what we're seeing with our own eyes. Um, I think if you look at what's happening uh, with that as the backdrop, it makes sense that people are withdrawing into themselves and just becoming more fearful and and acting, behaving out of a place of fear. And uh, and I think it increases the propensity to other eyes, especially other groups. Um, I just see this 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 erosion of trust as as sort of fuel for that trend of of the you know really the disintegration of social bonds and uh, and an ability to um, relate to one another um, in a in a in a meaningful way. So, do you spend much time thinking about that? Absolutely. I mean, I suppose what you're just raising here is you know an ancient philosophical question, which goes back centuries, you know, what is the nature of reality or what is your perception? Is there any truth? Um, but what is happening with our modern information ecosystem and the technology is that this ability to change people's grasp of reality, because you can no longer even count on your senses, right? You, even if you see it, even if you hear it, it does not have to be true, is culminating in this sense of distrust and cynicism. And that lack of trust that you touched upon is absolutely devastating to not only liberal democracy, but to society writ large. Because if you have no trust or no agreed sense of what is reality, did this actually happen? I say it's black, you say it's white. Then there is no bond upon which you can, especially in a liberal democracy, right, start to work together to figure out a way to come, you know, put your differences aside and reach a compromise, which is essentially what all liberal democracy is about. This is, again, why this kind of cynicism, this ability to not compromise, not be able to work with one another across the divide is so great for autocracy. Because, you know, and, and this is, these are the pains we see in Western liberal democracy, especially in the United States, when you think about how bitter the partisan divide is. What have I not touched on yet that you have spent a lot of time thinking, especially more recently, right? Because you've finished the book, you're doing speaking engagements. We'll, we'll link to where people can find you and follow your work. But is there, where are you, where's the frontier of your thinking right now and, and what you're most concerned about, what you're most hopeful about? And, um, you know. Yeah, I, I think, Look, we've discussed deepfakes in the context of disinformation, in the context of geopolitics, declining trust, everything, <laughs> information warfare, which is really kind of depressing and sobering. But just like all exponential technologies of this age, um, this is an amplifier of human intention. So it's actually much bigger than just a tool of visceral disinformation and visual disinformation. This, I think, is a um, AI-led revolution in the future of human communication, commerce, content creation. Because as I mentioned earlier in the pod, by 2030, we're probably going to inhabit a world where 90% of online video content is going to be made by AI. Not all of that is going to be malicious. In fact, there's a huge economy emerging for... Um, any business, any enterprise, any SME, because think about 
visual communication video. It's the most compelling medium of human communication. Um, this year, 2022, 80% of um, internet downloads are going to be internet traffic is going to be driven by video um, downloads and video streaming. Um, by next year, 2023, 5.6 billion people are not only going to be consuming and sharing video content online, but we're all going to be producing it as well um, via things like smartphone apps. So everyone is becoming a multimedia producer. And this is happening just at a time when synthetic, synthetic media is going to become ubiquitous, when AI is increasingly going to make all digital content. So this is a Cambrian explosion of creativity as well. It's just that in order to capitalize on the many exciting prospects of the synthetic future, we have to inbuilt the safety mechanisms into our information ecosystem now to mitigate mitigate against the really, really pernicious effects, which is not only to do with disinformation, identity theft, biometrics fraud, but fundamentally the risk that we end up inhabiting a society where we become completely cynical and don't believe anything anymore, which I think is obviously an existential threat to democracy and um, our way of life. Absolutely. Nina, um, before we before we wrap up, where can everybody find you on the internet? Where can they follow your work? Where's the best place to buy the book? Um, what are what are what what is the scope of work that you're doing in the world right now, and how can people access it? So please find me on social media with my handle Nina Dishik, whether on Twitter or on LinkedIn. My book is available on Amazon or at any other major retailers. Um, yeah. Just the best place to find me is through my social media or my website, ninashik.org. Okay. And you're doing speaking events. You're doing all kinds of things, right? Lots of speaking events, thinking okay. about the synthetic future, future of war, yeah. the paradigm change we find ourselves in. <laughs> I feel like we've just opened up, I don't know, a dozen more conversations that I'd really like to have with you. So maybe maybe in the future we can uh, we can reprise uh, some of those and, um, and maybe at some point meet up in London, it'd be great to sit down and yes. catch up in person. So that'd be great. uh, it's very nice, uh, visiting with you, Nina, and, um, talk to you soon. Thank you for having me, Ron. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.